When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Attention all personnel, please clear the launching area. Fire, fire. Oh, baby. I'll give it to you. That looks really good. Yes, it does. It's dead on. Okay, keep the chatter down in this room. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I'm all set, sir. Welcome to Space Boffins. We're in partnership with The Naked Scientists. I'm Richard Hollingham. And I'm Sue Nelson. This time we have two space shuttle astronauts in conversation as Anna Fisher talks to Nicole Stott about spacesuits, shuttle flights and women in space. And I'll be chatting to author David Brown about his new book, The Mission, charting the story of NASA's Europa Clipper mission to Jupiter's icy and watery moon. <laughs> Plus, we're joined by a fellow podcaster and space enthusiast and historian, host of the Space and Things podcast and founder of the 20,000 strong Facebook community, Space Hipsters. It is Emily Carney. Welcome, Emily, to Space Boffins. Thank you so much. I'm honored to be a part of this. Thank you very much. Oh, no, well, we're delighted you to say have that you. Now. Yes, yeah. you might not say this. <laughs> this might ruin your reputation. <laughs> and you're based in Florida, aren't you, um, Emily? Yeah, I live in St. Petersburg, Florida, uh, not too, too far from where all the launches and stuff happen. And, and not too far from Nicole Stott, actually, as well. So that's, that's, that's pretty cool. So how did Space Hipsters start for, for those? I can't imagine there might be some of our listeners may not have heard of Space Hipsters, but they will definitely uh, know by the end of this. So how did it start? Around 2010, I started a blog uh, called This Space Available, and it's now available on the uh, National Space Society blog roll. I'd always been a space enthusiast, but I really was just starting to really super get back into it again. And around February 2011, it was sort of like the, you know, the space shuttle program was sort of coming to an end around that point. And I was like, man, you know, I want to start a Facebook group about space, but I don't know what to call it. And my husband was like, well, just call it Space Hipsters because you think you did everything first. You know, <laughs> he was just joking. And uh, the group started and originally we had about four people, but it really did take off. Within about a year, we had about 100 people. So at the time I was like, wow, 100 people, that's all we're going to ever have. In the last decade, I mean, I, I've been sort of shocked. It's really taken off. Now we have, God, I don't even know how many people, how many people are in the group I, I think now? it's over 20,000, isn't it? You said 20,000. I said 20,000. Yeah, yeah. so but, you know, it could have gone up since I last uh, looked at it. What, what I like about it, because I, I'm very happy to be a, a part of that uh, group, is that you can never be too nerdy. In fact, if anything... I feel positively underqualified <laughs> to sometimes take part in conversations. <laughs> no, I do too. Like, uh, there are people in the group. I mean, we have a few, re you know, actual people flown to space in the group. We have, you know, a lot of technicians. We have a lot of workers. We have a lot of authors. If I ever have a question about something, somebody in there knows it, you know. So that's pretty incredible to to me, you know. <laughs> And is there anything that, you know, from, from this last sort of 10 years then, are there certain subjects that just touch everybody's buttons that you almost have to say, look, hold on there, partners, let's not get into this again? Oh, God, a big topic of, I guess, contention where people loved getting fights about it is uh, SpaceX versus SLS. That's a big one um, because... You know, they always want to be like, oh, SLS is never going to launch and, you know, all this stuff. And uh, to my knowledge, Artemis 1 is supposed to launch at year's end. So um, I think they're I think they're probably incorrect. We don't like that kind of rivalry within the group. You know, we, we want we're team space. We just want every launch provider to succeed, whether it's NASA or SpaceX or ULA or Rocket Lab or whoever. You know, we really like to see them all succeed because we want you know the the idea is we want everybody to go to space we want space to be accessible 
And, you know, what better way to have it be accessible than to have, you know, and, you know, and Blue Origin, I don't want to leave them out. Um, what better way to have space accessible than to have, you know, a lot of different launch providers. And Sierra Nevada Corporation, I think you have to add, don't you? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I don't want to upset anybody <laughs> by leaving them out. Is that an issue, though? Because I think it's an issue that, that we have uh, as science journalists. Essentially, we're fans. You know, we want this stuff to happen. Like, we're, like you know, uh, sports commentators are, are sports fans. It, it is quite difficult to remain objective and to remain impartial and not say, wow, look, look at what SpaceX are doing. Aren't they great? As a journalist, um, you know, it is kind of hard to remain impartial because I think what SpaceX is doing is amazing. But, you know, I we try to keep it in perspective of, OK, we're not going to allow people to I'm trying to find a delicate way to put it. We're not going to allow people to dis, you know, one launch provider over another, like say, oh, this these people are better than, you know, another person and stuff like that. We, we don't really want that sort of a negative kind of rivalry, I, I think we would like to be supportive of everybody. But that's the that's the delicate balance though, isn't it? Because at the same time that, you know, we're all we all love things space, also we're critical as well. We're not going to agree with everything that they do. I mean, I, I find it extraordinary the way SpaceX are, are so tight fisted when it comes to giving out interviews for instance. Exactly. Yeah. That infuriates me that really drives me nuts yeah i i do agree it can be you know frustrating you know as a journalist i'm not really used to that i'm used to writing somebody and they write you back and say yeah we can talk you know about this so i do get i do get that yeah well stay with us emily we will talk more in a moment uh especially about your podcast too Thank you. Now, I recently made a radio program for BBC World Service called The Equal Right Stuff, telling the story of NASA's 1977 intake of astronaut recruits. They included the first women, the first African-Americans and the first Asian-Americans. It was presented by shuttle and space station astronaut Nicole Stott and featured one of those first women and the first mother in space, Anna Fisher. Anna was working as a medical doctor in an emergency department when she applied to be an astronaut. In 1984, she would end up flying one of the most ambitious of the shuttle missions, capturing two faulty satellites from orbit and returning them to Earth. Well, we could only use a little bit of that interview for the programme, but we thought you'd like to hear more of it. So here's a conversation between two astronauts, Nicole Stott and Anna Fisher. My first job was to work on the area of spacesuits. And of course, they didn't even have a shuttle suit. So I was using Pete Conrad's A7LB, which he was the shortest of the Apollo astronauts, but still his suit didn't fit me. And as you know, probably better than I, that when you have a suit that doesn't fit well with all these air pockets in them, you know, you're, not only is the work hard, but you're fighting the buoyancy of the suit. So I would have to say that of all the things I've ever tried to do, that was, you know, really the hardest physically and mentally, you know, as you know, um, getting into the water tank with this whole team of people. <laughs> and all they're there for is to support you and watch you. <laughs> and again, we didn't have the, the same preparation that crew members get now where they give you all these runs and they teach you different techniques. We were just kind of figuring it out for ourselves. But again, you know, despite how difficult it was, it was still very rewarding. And, and it was sad because the, the, the way the shuttle suit is designed originally, it was to accommodate the full range from five percentile female to 95th percentile male. But it just turned out that when you got that hard upper torso small enough to where it really fit someone my size or your size for that matter, um, getting into it was just so difficult. And so finally, after a period of time, and of course, with all the budget overruns and everything, um, the decision was made just not to spend that extra money you had to fit in the medium or the large. When you look at it from that standpoint, you know, most of the women in the office are are on the on the smaller side and to see the success. I mean, I am really well, I'm proud that I was able to do it too, but you know, to watch, you know, women working in these suits that really are not, you know, are not designed to fit them at that, you know, in that point. And it's incredible to see that. It's an unnecessary disadvantage, right? Um, in all of it. And 
I would have to say that in all of my astronaut training, that was that was the one place I felt like there was there was this challenge that didn't need to be there, you know. And um, and I'm I'm happy that as we're moving forward with you know the future of suits, that that's that's something that um, is a priority to be accommodated as well. Oh yes, I, I'm certain that you can design suits that'll fit the full range of people uh, in the office. But um, you know, again, it always comes with a price tag as well. And uh, I understand the realities of all those things. And so, from my perspective, although personally disappointed, you know, I, I'm a team player in that sense. I never wanted to be in a position where I would be trying to do a task that I couldn't do well because I wasn't in a suit that fit me well enough. But, you know, that leaves a lot of work for the future. And just seeing all these women doing all these amazing things makes me incredibly proud. So again, stepping back just a little bit, back to your first spaceflight assignment. And when you were assigned, you were pregnant. The media seemed to be obsessed with that, you know, and that that you were a mother. Um, not to, I'm, you know, God bless you too. Just in general, with being in the astronaut office, that you know, with with that going on, um, you know, because even in 2009, when I flew the first time, and I wasn't pregnant when I was assigned, that there was a focus on the question of being a mother and an astronaut. And I, I, I understand the interest in it. I really do. But I always wondered why our father crewmates never got the same question. And I imagine you had to deal with that as well. Again, I'm so grateful we didn't have the internet and Twitter and all that stuff. Thank God. <laughs> because, um, you know, uh, recently there's that picture that um, John Bryson took of me with the helmet and stuff. And somehow it wound up getting into the internet and people were talking uh, about me being a mother and all that stuff commenting. And they were talking as though it, you know, was right now, like, is it okay for her to go into space? Cause she's with a mother. I'm going, oh. Hello, guys, that was like 20 years ago. <laughs> yeah. But again, you know, you're just in your own little world at that point. I, w- I was very fortunate to have a absolutely wonderful lady who came in and took care of Kristen during the day and, and for shuttle training, you know, for the most part, until the very end, your training was like from eight to, you know, four to six, depending on what kind of day you had. So I'd get home and I'd have the whole evening with, with Kristen. And in fact, and we took lots of videos because we didn't know, you know for sure what was going to happen. And we joked, that's the reason Kristen wound up going into broadcast journalism was because we, we took so much video that first year in case anything happened. So she would at least remember me. I think that that leads nicely into my next question, which is, you know, we do, I think we all understand what the, the ultimate risk of spaceflight is, and it's certainly a consideration for all astronauts. And, you know, especially when you're thinking about how you prepare, you know, yourself and your family for what's, what's coming with the flight. I understand that before you flew, that you also wrote a letter to Kristen, and I'm not expecting you to go into any details, but was this something that you you guys figured out on your own to do? It just felt right, or did somebody else encourage you? Actually, the story behind that is is interesting because you know we went into quarantine, and um, our families left before us, and then we were going to the ha- to the house to pick up any things we needed after they had left. And as I was leaving quarantine, Dave Walker, who um, I know you know, and many people would not consider him the most sensitive of people. He looked at me and he said, well, are you going to write the letter? And I go, what do you mean the letter? And he looked at me and he goes, you know, the letter. And I'll have to say that I don't know if I would have thought of that on my own. Maybe I would have, but it really surprised me that this pilot who had fought fought in Vietnam, many combat missions in Vietnam, went to test pilot school. And I guess maybe I'd always understood the risk, but I think that really hit me that he, someone that many people might not think of as the most sensitive person, um, said that. So I went home and I wrote a letter to Kristen and I wrote a letter to Bill and I put them in my jewelry box and told Bill they were there and luckily they weren't needed. But that was the story behind that. <laughs> 
Well, and it's carried on. I mean, I get goosebumps thinking about it. And um, I think I think mine are still in storage somewhere. But I mean, I want I want to talk a little bit about your your flight to, you know, you you were on a mission, your your mission. You know, there were there were a lot of firsts about it for sure, but like rescuing satellites as, as you know, as someone who years later had the opportunity to capture HTV one, um, I know what that weight <laughs> felt like on my shoulders. I cannot speak for you, but you were the robotic arm operator for that. And and just like the EVA stuff, I, I have to imagine that the preparation I got for HTV was significantly different than than what you were presented, um, you know working and figuring out how to capture that free fly and spin in satellite and space. I mean, how, how did that feel for you? I know we talked about it before I did HTV, but I just, I just really, I got to hear it from you again. First of all, if I could have picked a flight to be on, that's the flight I would have picked and my crewmates, you know, it was just, just an incredible flight, but I'll backtrack a little bit because um, in February of 84, um, that which was the flight that deployed the two satellites. And also it was the first flight of the manned maneuvering unit, Bruce and Samless. So I was sent up to New York to be on the Today Show to provide commentary, not for the satellites, but for, um, you know, for, the, for Bruce's uh, free flight on the, with the manned maneuvering unit. So as I leave Houston, they had problems with the first satellite that the rocket that was supposed to take it from low Earth orbit to geosynchronous orbit failed. And so um, I head up to New York and I'm thinking, well, there's no way they're going to launch the second one. And of course, that's again before the time of iPhones and everything. So I get into the taxi to, to go to my hotel and I'm talking with the taxi driver and we get talking. He says, no, I, I think they just deployed the second one. And, and I think it had the same problem. And I, I said, no, you must have misunderstood, you know. So I get back to the hotel and I call, and sure enough, <laughs> the taxi driver was right, Mark, uh, the ways we communicated back in those days. <laughs> so anyway, I get on the Today Show, and um, so now they're asking me questions about, you know, why this happened and that decision. And, you know, I'm thinking it's a polite way to say it beats me <laughs> why they um, but so anyway, they asked me, well, do you think NASA will go get these satellites? And I said, absolutely no way. These satellites were not designed to be retrieved. Um, you know, the arm needs to have a special grapple fixture to get it and, you know, all this sort of, you know, so I gave all the rationale, which, man, those are the best words I ever ate in my life. <laughs> so, yeah, it was just really fun. And, uh, you know, it, it was so much fun because we were not only – we weren't just being trained. We were part of the development of the hardware, the procedures and, and all of that. And no one had ever done that. So um, it really was um, exciting. But the thing I remember most, and I'm sure you probably felt the same way, everybody had their responsibilities and this was yours. And the mission, you know, relied on whether you were successful or not. And as I went uh, to to go in to, to grab the satellite, all I can remember was all the, the simulator didn't reproduce all the motion. You know, here's the satellite over here spinning. Uh, Rick is um, maneuvering the shuttle a little bit to stay in station keeping. The earth is rotating. The clouds are moving. It was, all I remember was so much motion. And here you are just focusing on trying to go in and, and grab the satellite and just, you know, ignore all that. So that that's the thing I remember most about that. And man, I was really glad when that was over successfully. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It is like that. It is. It's like this. It really is like a weight. And I don't know about you, but um, I have to imagine there was some something similar is you know, we got we got HTV captured, and then you know you can push the button gets pushed, and you're in a safe configuration, right? And 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 then I remember, I mean, it was so there was so much focus in that with you know in the crew behind me, and you know Bob and um, Frank there, you know by my side as is this as I was flying this thing, and the button gets pushed, we're safe, and I just we looked at each other, and all of us there was like this little kind of tremor in our hands. And I'm like, it was like this release, this, you know, the adrenaline had done its job for good. And now you could chill a little bit. You could let your body respond to this, 
load that you'd felt. And I, I don't know, it, it felt strange, but it felt really good at the same time. Well, you know, the other thing that was interesting about this flight compared to later uh, space station rendezvous was we had to do the rendezvous. But while we were doing the, Rick and I did the rendezvous because Joe and Dale and Dave were below getting them suited. Because as soon as we got up to the satellite, we had to start a six-hour EVA, spacewalk. So you you really didn't get much of a chance to just relax. And one of the things that I felt particularly grateful for was because Dave and Joe and Dale were below getting suited up. It was just Rick and me doing the, the rendezvous. <laughs> So that was really, really fun, just because um, in general, the mission specialist doesn't get to do that. But then um, as we're, uh, you know, because of, again, being only a five-person crew, uh, Rick had to be the backup arm operator because Dave is busy being IVA, uh, helping the our crew members outside, and then Joe and Dale are outside. And if you go back and look at our first um, uh, rendezvous and all that, there's almost no pictures at all. Nobody had time to even think about photographs. So after in the day in between, we really talked it over and said, hey, we're going to have to be a lot more conscious and figure out, you know, how to get photos for the second one. So but anyway, that's uh, that that I found that to be very interesting as compared to watching the later flights that went to space station, because it was just, you know, 16 hours of pure adrenaline, pretty yeah. much. <laughs> NASA astronaut and trailblazer Anna Fisher talking to astronaut Nicole Stott. And trailblazer Nicole, Nicole Stott, Stott yes. yes. We could have, uh, Better say that. Have, yes. have both of them there. Uh, Emily, what did you think about hearing them talk about their spacesuits? Because that really sort of chimed with me in terms of making you realise how uncomfortable it has been for the women who've done spacewalks, not having a suit effectively designed for their bodies. Wow. Uh, I do have a lot to say. I don't want it. Like I said, this is a family friendly show. So (laughs) in, um, in private, I would probably cuss a lot about this kind of stuff. I'm sort of reminded about when um, a couple of years ago, when there was supposed to be the first female spacewalk, I think initially it was supposed to be uh, Christina Cook and uh, Anne McLean, I think initially and um, I think they had to to wave it off because um, in, in space, obviously, your physiology changes. And I think um, Anne McLean could not really fit into her spacesuit. So they had to sort of wave it off. And I remember at the time, and obviously McLean couldn't help that, you know, because in space you do sort of grow, I guess, to put it mildly, because your spine changes. At the time, I remember sort of being incandescent with anger about it because I was like, nobody in NASA saw this happening or could foresee this happening, you know, because I really wanted an all-female spacewalk to happen. And it did happen eventually because uh, later, um, I think uh, uh, Jessica Meyer and uh, Christina Cook did the spacewalk together eventually. So it did happen, but we had to wait a while. But um, the shuttle spacesuits were designed over 40 years ago. You know, I, I remember seeing people like John Young and Bob Crippen putting them on in like the um, parabolic flights, you know, testing them out. So they were probably mostly tested on males. So didn't probably leave a lot of <laughs> flexibility for, you know, women who we might be the same size, you know, height wise as men, but we don't have the same dimensions. We just don't. What I think is interesting about that whole group of of astronauts, and not just the women there, it was the first time we got a different type of astronaut, a, a more. I mean, they're still superhuman; they're still exceptional yeah. people, but they're more normal. They're more. Uh, you guys, I mean, listen to Anna Fisher. She sounds. She doesn't. She's not one of the. I mean, you mentioned um, Bob Crippen and, and John Young. Those sort of you know right stuff types of the nineteen sixties. These were a very different breed of astronaut for the most part. Yeah, uh, you're absolutely right. They're they're definitely more relatable to me as a kid. You know, growing up in the in the South, in the you know the 1980s. You know, I remember reading the Jane Spaceflight Directory and, and from the library because I was kind of precocious. <laughs> <laughs> I remember reading that, you know, and thinking, you know, at the time I didn't really have an awareness that women had been to space or women. There were women astronauts. You know, I was very much used to the the, you know, our typical, you know, male right stuff astronauts from 
you know, the early shuttle era, because that's what I had seen in the news really so far. And then when I read, you know, Jane's and I started, you know, sort of watching more TV and stuff, I became aware of, you know, women like Judy Resnick. I'm, I'm Jewish. So seeing her go to space and seeing, you know, and she's, she was such a personality too. I mean, she had that amazing bouffant of hair and she went to space and she just, those pictures of her, you know, with her hair up and out, I mean, those should have been on the front page of every newspaper because it was just, it looks so different from what I was used to seeing in books because I was used to seeing, you know, the, the fighter pilots and the, you know, the guys from the sixties, like John Glenn and John Young, who are fine people, but they just, you know, they, they had a certain, they, they look very standardized, you know, whereas somebody like Judy Resnick just looked like literally like just represented a completely different world. I wonder whether the fact that, I mean, she was also, she was vivacious. She yeah. was glamorous as well. And it, it's sort of the, the, the whole package, isn't it? It was, it was, as like you say, as far away from some man with a crew cut who's maybe quite tight-lipped and disciplined because they've got the military background. And yet she was incredibly, like all of them, um, they were all so bright. Yeah, she was incredibly well-qualified to do that job. I mean, she was a pilot, a very capable pilot. She was, you know, obviously an, an incredible scientist, very brilliant. The thing as a kid that got me was just, it sounds so superficial, but it's just, I thought the hair was so cool. She was wearing the sunglasses. She just did make it look really glamorous. And I, you know, when I saw that, I was like, you can have a career in space flight and you can still be, you know, yourself. You can still be, you know, if you want to be glamorous, you can be glamorous. If you want to, you can have sort of a personality and do what you do what you really want to do. So for me, seeing that, that was a huge moment as a kid. What what interests me is that you have had a career in the military yourself, in the Navy as a, an, an engineer. So what attracted you towards, you know, what particularly over the last sort of 20, 30 years, I mean, it's changing now, but for a long period of time was considered that a bit like the the old astronauts a very sort of male male dominated area that's a really great question and you're absolutely right uh when i first joined it was in the mid 90s i was a nuclear mechanical operator on an aircraft carrier and i had to go to school for several years before i even went to the aircraft carrier to learn that job there were a lot of parallels uh to that sort of you know, the transition between the, you know, the right stuff era and, you know, when they started hiring women in the, you know, in the late 70s, because um, when I first joined, I was one of the first women on my ship. I was probably among the first five who showed up. Um, they had just started integrating women on the ship I was on at the time. I was on the USS George Washington. I was so young, I didn't really have an awareness at the time. But now looking back, I mean, there were people who looked at me like I was an alien from another planet. I mean, it was just, it was just wild, because they just hadn't seen, you know, somebody who just even looked like me, because I was, you know, most mechanics are these big, you know, muscular guys. And, you know, there I was, I'm, I'm very short in real life, <laughs> you know, I'm not very muscle bound. You know, I look sort of like a regular person. And, um, it was kind of a culture shock, I'm sure for them and for me as well, because, you know, I had people who literally were like, oh, let me do this for you, or you can't do this, so I'm going to do it for you. And I'm like, wait, wait a minute, you know, wait, wait a second, I can do this just fine, you know. So it was kind of, I think there were probably a few parallels. I mean, I, I think the first women who became astronauts, when I've heard them speak, they've been very, um, they've made it pretty clear that for the most part, they felt you know, pretty welcomed in the astronaut corps, except, you know, maybe for a few things. It's really interesting because, uh, you know, talking to the women for this program, it, it was absolutely, they they all said NASA did its very best and everyone around them did their very best to, to integrate, to to make it normal, a new normal, having women in the, in the astronaut program. The issue seems to have been the media, actually, and the perception and how they thought Americans would take to women in the program. I agree. Uh, I've watched a few media clips from the time, uh, especially with Sally Ride and Judy Resnick, because they were the first two. And um, I remember watching a press conference and 
Sally Ride was getting questions, you know, such as if something, you know, I, I may be misquoting here, but like, you know, if something goes wrong, do you think you'll start crying? <laughs> you know? <laughs> no, you're pretty stuff. much spot on with the actual quote. Yeah, it's Stuff extraordinary. like that. And yeah. she just started laughing because, yeah. <laughs> of course not. You know, she's a professional. She would, you know, she's not going to just break down and lose it, you know? And I think um, I watched a old clip with Judy Resnick being interviewed by Tom Brokaw, who's, you know, this very, very archetypical male reporter from the 1980s who was on NBC, I think. And he was asking her questions, you know, like, what do you say when a guy, you know, meets you and he says, hey, cute little lady, you know, and what do you what do you say to that? <laughs> it's like, it's pure, it's like the 1960s. It's pure Ron it? Burgundy. It's yeah. just Ron Burgundy. Yeah. It was like Ron Burgundy. And Judy was really... Judy was really actually pretty awesome about it. She basically just like, you know, I just tell him I'm an engineer. And I was like, that's a great answer to it. And she was really, she, you know, I would have probably wanted to punch him in the face or something, but she was very, you know, she, she was, I think she was awesome at, you know, dealing with that kind of stuff. Whereas, uh, you know, Sal- I probably would have reacted more like Sally. I would have just started laughing. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. It's, it's lovely the way it's so different now. I mean, they announced, relatively recently that Samantha Christopher Retty was returning to space for the European Space Agency and that she's going to be commander on the space station. And Samantha has also been part of the sort of new recruitment drive for ESA, where they've specifically said, you know, women, we want you effectively. If you've got any form of disability, don't think you're going to be disqualified. We want you, you know, they're really sort of thinking much more diversely in terms of their crew. And I love the way as part of um, the, the sort of, you know, in, improving that diversity, Samantha had done just a short video saying, you know, I've got two children. If you want to apply to to be an astronaut, you can. You can be like me. You can be a parent. You can just don't rule yourself out. Has there been a similar sort of excitement and reaction and also sort of more commonplace acceptance in the States that, yeah, we're going to get a woman on the moon? Honestly, I think in the United States, it's not viewed as a big deal. I think people are so used to the idea of having women in space now that it's not really viewed as like, you know, oh, my God, they're going to put a woman on the moon. I think it's more viewed as we're going to put people back on the moon. Do you have any insight into who might be that woman? Oh, my gosh. Um, well, I've seen the the Artemis poster, and I, I do have to say, I think every woman on that list, I mean, is just more than qualified to step on the moon. Um, oh, my gosh. That's really tough to say because I don't want to leave anybody out. If I could have them all step on the moon. Uh, I think Kayla Barron, I, I think she's one of the Artemis astronauts. And um, she's going to the ISS soon, uh, later this year. But um, she's also a a woman who worked in nuclear engineering in the Navy. And if I saw her step on the moon first, I think I would just about collapse. (laughs) I think I would just about die because I'm like, wow, they put one of me on the moon. Like that would really like, you know, but that's 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 yeah. a for all mankind parallel universe for you, isn't it? That one. Yes, absolutely. C- completely. I-, I think I would just about faint. So we'll stay, <laughs> stay with us. <laughs> uh, a couple of bits of admin. Uh, do check us out on social media. You can find pictures of the solar eclipse line in Richmond in uh, North Yorkshire from July 1927. But I was reading about it. The, that's the eclipse because we were there for in, a, in North a Yorkshire, break. Northern England. Yeah. Um Big publicity in lead up to it. There were special trains laid on. There were special hotel deals, all the rest of it, all the stuff mm. that you still have today associated with eclipses. It was really disappointing. Oh, Hardly it's... anyone got to see anything. This sounds very familiar. This sounds like the last UK eclipse as well. It's just, we've got terrible weather for it. And Bjorn from Sweden has been in touch, but um, not, not that oh, long. Oh, okay. Uh, with some more music. And we'll hear from that, uh, hear that music later on. At the end of the podcast. It's really nice. It's really good. This is uh, Space Boffins. We're in partnership with The Naked Scientists. Do get in touch on Facebook or Twitter. You can also email us at podcast at spaceboffins.com or info at boffinmedia.co.uk. If you're new to Space Boffins, do follow the podcast. Maybe you could write a review but not before you've listened to our next item. In 2024, NASA plans to launch a mission to Jupiter's moons 
to investigate Europa. Europa is the most likely place to find life in our solar system today because we think there's a liquid water ocean beneath its surface. Now we know that on Earth, everywhere that there's water, we find life. So could Europa have the ingredients? That's Bob Papalado featured in a NASA video about the Europa Clipper mission, which will study the moon from Jupiter's orbit. Bob is also one of the heroes of a new book called The Mission. And the author is David Brown. David, thanks for joining us on Space Boffins. Thank you very much for having me today. Now, before we get onto the book, let's talk about Europa. Is it our best hope of finding life in the solar system? Without question. Um, when you really look at the numbers, Europa is more likely to be habitable than the planet Earth. For those who, who are not aware, Europa is uh, the ocean moon of Jupiter. Um, it's about the size of our moon, but there's three times more liquid salt water on Europa than there is on Earth. And by water, I don't mean some weird scientist's definition of water, some green alien goo, but actual, the same stuff that we see in our oceans. You could take a cup, plunge it in that water, and uh, drink it. Um, it wouldn't be healthy for you, and I don't advise it, but your body would know what to do with it. And because of because of that water, because of the uh, the chemistry that that water creates when it touches the, the seafloor, that rocky seafloor, and because of um, um, heating from inside of Europa itself, you basically have, have all the ingredients you need for life. It is by far the most habitable place in the solar system. And, and it's quite extraordinary that we would find life on a place so unlike Earth, and yet it would be life as we know it. Now, that water is trapped under these, well, they look like rafts of ice. We don't know there's life there, but we do know there's water there. So that's the assumption is that that's the best hope, really. Exactly. So to, to get life, you're going to need you're going to need organics, you're going to need water, and you're going to need chemical energy. We know this in large measure because that's that's what's necessary for life on this world. The composition of Europa is is, is fairly well constrained. So we know that the organics are there. We know that the water is there. It is beneath a, an ice shell. And the ice shell is actually quite protective of life in that ocean below because uh, Europa is in a, a highly radioactive part of space. And and the chemical energy can come in multiple ways. You can either have hydrothermal vents on the bottom of, uh, of Europa, which is most likely what, what what is the case. And we see that on our seafloor sea as well. These sort of hot columns of water billowing out from the inside of the earth. And life down there absolutely loves it. It's just teeming with life down there. If there is such a, a good chance of the, there being life there, why has it taken so long for us to have a mission to go there? And I should talk about your book, really, because it's great. Uh, but it's written in a, a narrative non-fiction style. You've written it as a, a, as a thriller. And, and because the journey to get there, the journey to get to this Europa Clipper, which won't even land, it is real. I mean, it goes back decades. It, it, Europa is a very, very difficult place to explore. It exists in, in what's called the Jovian radiation belt. Uh, the conditions there are like the immediate aftermath of a detonated thermonuclear bomb. And that's a consequence of Jupiter's massive magnetic field and, and sort of the interplay of, of particles in space. Uh, the, the, sort of the, the, the simple version is Europa orbits in just, just the place that's least hospitable for robotic spacecraft. And that's how we would have to explore a place like this. There have been enormous engineering challenges along the way. How do you explore such a thing? How do you constrain the, cab the habitability of a world like this? How do you do it in a way that's affordable. People tend to think that NASA has this massive percentage of the, the American federal budget, but that's not the case at all. NASA gets one half of 1% of the budget. It's, it's practically a rounding error compared to something like the, like the Defense Department. And consequently, um, these sorts of missions that launch every 10 to 20 years, these are called NASA's flagship missions, they're constantly seeing small cuts at the margins in order to accommodate diminishing NASA budgets. So it's it, it the only reason this sort of mission ever launches in the first place, and not just this one, but there, there are several, but this one in particular has had a, a difficult time. Uh, the only reason these sorts of missions launch is because of, of, de of dedicated scientists who, I mean, frankly, they're, you know, these aren't like billionaires who are 
live live in the dream life. They they work very hard, and it's pretty thankless work. And you could spend your entire career to try to get a mission going, and 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 it never actually get approved, or it get approved, but by the time the mission is built, launches, and returns data, I mean you're you're retired, if not dead. It's so depressing. You give, you give the impression uh, that, that NASA is obsessed with Mars. Is that just because it's easier? I mean, is there an element of we can do this, we can land something on, on Mars, but the risks associated with getting something to Europa, it's just not worth the effort? There's a lot of that. So NASA is first and foremost a human spaceflight organization. The the S in NASA does not stand for science. Uh, as as some people like to say, which means uh, Mars has a sort of a natural leg up on the competition simply because um, astronauts are going to walk there one day. And so if you want to propose a science mission, you're really, it, from NASA's point of view, you're getting twice the return. You're getting science back, and that's great. We're going to understand Mars, and we'll understand more about the origin, you know, the history of the solar system and so on. But the real benefit there is whenever we send a an atmospheric probe to, to our orbiter to, to Mars, or we send a lander and we better constrain the things necessary to land large, heavy objects on Mars. We roll around on the surface and we collect soil samples or whatever. What you're doing in addition to getting really cool science is you're buying down risk for a future astronaut mission. You're answering a lot of those unknown unknowns or known unknowns in order to um, make things safer when astronauts get there eventually. So NASA has always had a more, I mean, actually, before NASA was even founded, the people who would who would become the initial leaders of NASA, they were far more interested in going to Mars than they were going to the Moon. The Apollo program was sort of an anomaly. That was it was a it was a stop along the way, but it was never meant to be the destination. So, t- to that end, human spaceflight makes it a natural target. The, the the other thing working for it, of course, as you said, is it's Mars is closer. I mean, you can launch a spacecraft there every two years. Um, and it's only about a nine month journey. Um, and, and that has enormous benefits. If you're, if, if you're NASA, you have very little money. You've got to do the best you can with what you've got. Um, Mars is the sure thing. Mars is the safe bet. Europa, that's, that's quite a daring mission that they're going to, uh, that they're building right now and that's going to launch in 2024. Um, and that mission is Europa Clipper. Um, so yeah, so it, it would be nice. I mean, it would be the most important question in the history of science religion or philosophy to know if life, if there was a second genesis somewhere else in the solar system. But uh, from a practical standpoint, NASA is just is going to go to Mars if given the choice. Now, as I said, you, you tell the stories as a, as a thriller. You get really inside people's heads. You are saying what people are feeling. And I suppose uh, the parallel is with uh, Tom Wolfe's uh, The Right Stuff. is the first to do this with the, with the space program, really. How did, how did you do that? And how was that received when you, when you show the book to the people you, you feature in this? Because you are, you're, you are telling their thoughts. And these are people who are, who are still around. That's right. So, so the book took seven years to write. And um, when I first started writing it, the, the Europa Clipper mission had not yet been approved. So these people's lives, life's work had not actually been given a green light. So they, they took an awful big risk talking to me in the first place because I could have derailed decades of work if I had published something uh, that I guess didn't wasn't respectful of the story that they had lived. In that time, over 100 people were interviewed for the book, hundreds of hours of interviews. It was exhausting for everyone involved. But, but over time, I think they came to see that I was actually doing my homework. I was actually um, someone worth talking to. I mean, so, so you mentioned Bob Papalardo. He's the, the head of the Europa Clipper mission. He's the project scientist on that spacecraft. When you talk to the world's foremost subject matter expert on Europa, the first question you ask him is not, so does Europa have an ocean? Like you've got to actually do your homework so that when you go to these people, you get questions that – or you get questions answered that only they can answer. So initially, I think early on, they, they sort of could tell that I was serious about this and – um Eventually, they came to see the sort of book that I was writing, and, and there were some weird questions along the way, and and uh, which is how I get some of the some of the I guess the humorous anecdotes in the story and and sort of really inside their head. I will say that after I finished writing the book, I had to send you know a couple of them copies of the manuscript, not because I needed their approval, but because I needed to make sure that I just didn't totally screw this thing up, because um, <laughs> there was a there was a good chance, and I was terrified that. They were going to be a little bit surprised by the, the sort of the eccentric nature of the narrative voice in the book. 
because a lot of people expect a very traditional work of nonfiction, kind of the, you know, the, the, the staid sort of prim and proper scientist type book. And this is not that. This is a bit more rollicking. And in, in every case, they were, uh, they were enthralled. They were, they were thrilled by the product. It, it was funny. So when I sent Bob the book, cause there's a lot of science in the book. It's not a, it's not a science book. And, and the reader doesn't have to bring any science to the table. You don't have to know anything to read this book. The book will do all the heavy lifting for you, but there is a lot of science in there um, just by virtue of the subject matter. And when I sent it to Bob, I was terrified that I would have to rewrite a hundred pages or something. And, and I was very gratified to see he wanted one word changed in the entire book. <laughs> so that considered that a great success. No, that's that's absolutely that's absolutely brilliant to win win the trust, which is obviously key. And great use of the word rollicking there. I thought uh, very good. Um, <laughs> what what about um, you know Europa Clipper? I mean, it's it's still an amazing mission. It's going to be an incredible mission to even to get there to be able to study Europa. I mean, what everyone really wants is a is a lander. I mean, is that is that doable? Is that feasible? Absolutely. The so Europa Lander, NASA spent over a hundred million, or maybe two hundred million dollars, just studying how to do the lander. So development on it is very is pretty far along. Um, you're, the reason Europa Clipper is important before you get Europa Lander is because Europa, although the spacecraft Galileo spent a lot of time at the Jupiter system and and did get some good images of Europa and collected a lot of composition and things like that, um, we still don't know what the surface of Europa looks like. And by that, I mean, if, if you look at like a picture of, of the Earth from the Apollo program or just from a space, you know, satellite in orbit right now, you see a picture of the Earth and you recognize the continents. There's Europe, there's North America, there's Africa and so on. And it's green and there's blue. So there's, you know, there's foliage here and there's water here. But then I said, oh, now I need you to land something in Central Park in New York City. Like you, you wouldn't even know where New York is. You, would, you wouldn't know what Central Park looks like. You wouldn't know if there was a lake there. You wouldn't know if there was a mountain there. You would have no idea. And Europa is the same way. We've got these beautiful images from afar, but up close and personal at the, at the scales, at the, the super fine resolution you need to actually say, I want to land right here because this spot, based on our analyses, tell us – this is the place that will answer or this will this is the place that will answer the life question. We set a lander down here, it can saw into the ice and it can do its chemical uh it, 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 its chemical analysis and, and and we'll know sort of the answer once and for all. You you, you just there's so many unknown unknowns in, in that case. There's so many variables that need to be sort of constrained given sort of left and right brackets. Once you do that, then you can send that lander and you can get the best answer because you've only got one shot at this, right? So a lander is going to cost about four billion dollars. You're not going to get two four billion dollar spacecraft on the surface of Europa. Not unless, I mean, not unless the thing, the first one lands and we see penguins walking around. Other than <laughs> that, it's going to be it's it, it's a one shot deal. So you've got to you've got to do it exactly right the first time. So Europa Clipper is is less expensive than a lander would be, um, but it also gives you extraordinary science. So it, you're able to map that ice shell in three dimensions. You're able to constrain the, the, the size of the ocean, the composition of the ocean, the things like the pH of the ocean. You're able to figure out you know, why, does, why does Europa work? So Europa was the first non-Earth world in, in the universe that we know has plate tectonics. It's slightly different than the plate tectonics on Earth, but it is plate tectonics all the same. And that sort of recycling of Europa's surface is one way that the ocean itself is oxidized. Um, so, so you're, you're able to answer all these fundamental questions about how icy worlds work, how these moons in the outer solar system work, how sort of the, the Jovian system came to be and how it operates. And, and you can extrapolate to different bodies in the solar system accordingly. So in its own right, it's great. But as a, as a precursor to a lander, it's essential. I love the idea there could be penguins there. I mean, I mean, it's not a completely frivolous thought, really, because I mean, in Arthur C. Clarke's twenty uh, two thousand and ten Odyssey, Odyssey two, mm-hmm. uh, humans are, are specifically warned off going to to Europa. So, I mean, could there be complex life there? I would say that if there's anywhere in the solar system that has complex life, it's it's Europa. So, so. What they're searching for desperately on Mars right now, by way of comparison, or what they're looking for in the in the clouds of Venus right now, is microbial life, single-celled organisms that might exist now, but might have existed three billion years ago. We don't know, um, and that would be an extraordinary find. I mean, it would be a a seismic shift in in our understanding of biology. But life that you would find on Mars, 
life that you would find in Venus very likely originated at Earth or conversely, and this is getting sort of in the in sort of the the outer edges of, of, of science, but but it's interesting that and there were some very prestigious papers or p- papers published in very prestigious uh, publications in the last couple of years that hypothesize, you know, there's equally good chance that life originated on Mars and was eventually sort of cross-pollinated to Earth. And that happens, for example, um, when we look at the, the Chicxulub impactor, right? That's the, that's the asteroid that destroyed the dinosaurs. That impact was so profoundly powerful that one day when we have moon bases and we have archaeologists, our, our, our um, paleontologists on the moon, they're going to be digging around on the moon and they're going to find dinosaur bones. And those dinosaur bones would have come from the planet Earth. So the same thing happens with, with life more generally. When you get these asteroid impacts on the Earth or Mars or Venus or whatever, uh, debris is kicked up into space and eventually the other bodies just sort of cross into it. Europa's not that. Europa's so far away from Earth that life there did not originate here. That means life there as I mentioned earlier, had its own genesis. It Life came from lifelessness of its own accord there. And yes, microbial life is, 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 is possible, but um, complex life is equally possible, unlike Earth, which has had multiple extinction-level events. So the Earth is, you know, four point something billion years old. We've had the surface of the Earth sterilized multiple times after life has taken hold. Uh, Europa's had four billion years of uninterrupted time to have life take hold and to evolve. Um, it hasn't suffered the sort of extinction level events that we know of that, that the earth has. Um, so there could be some very complex life down there. And when you look at the, the animal life in, in our oceans, um, I think you'll find that uh, things look pretty scary down there. Like it, you wouldn't recognize any of that stuff as even being of the earth. So whatever would have taken hold and evolved on Europa would be extraordinary beyond imagination. That's author David Brown. I do recommend the book. It is lovely and it's written as a, a romping yarn, I would say. Romping yarn. That's that sounds very, very British, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, that, it's really great. Emily Carney, a host of Space and Things and founder of the 20,000 Strong Facebook community Space Hipsters, is still with us. What do you make of, of missions to Europa? I mean, my feeling was about time. Yeah, I really am excited about um, some of the new planetary missions, interplanetary missions that are coming out now. Um, I've been sort of following, uh, probably not in as much detail as as other people, but I've been sort of following Europa Clipper for a long time just because um, it's just Europa is just such an unknown quantity. There are so many planetary moons, interplanetary moons that are just, we just don't know anything about them really. And it's just it's going to be so exciting to see a spacecraft sort of really investigate this totally alien world. Do you think we've got a bit obsessed with Mars? I don't want to upset my Mars friends, but I do think <laughs> you're you are the you're the epitome of a space diplomat. You're doing very well. This <laughs> is why you've you. got twenty thousand yeah. followers. Yeah. That's great. I do think we have become a little bit Mars obsessed, only because it's our it's the closest planet. And it's really the the planet that people have focused on, like, okay, we're going to try to go there and walk on it. For years, I've been like, why haven't we gone back and investigated Venus? You know, why haven't we gone back and looked at that? Because we've had very few missions to Venus. I think we had a one Mariner back in the day, back in the 70s. Then we had Pioneer Venus. And then there was um, Magellan, and that was it, you know. And then we never went back. But the, the Soviet it. Union did pretty well on Venus. Yeah. They sort of targeted Venus yeah. and getting a lander there was extraordinary. I, I think I like the excitement online actually about um, NASA going to to Venus because I reckon it's probably going to be a little bit like with Pluto is that we'll see the planet afresh. It, it's really, I think, still such an unknown quantity be, because like, yeah, we had Pioneer Venus in the 1980s and it did – some, you know, it had a some uh, a radar altimeter, so it did some, you know, sort of surveillance of okay, what's underneath the clouds. And Magellan did a, you know, did a better job with that. It, it really mapped the whole planet. But still, I mean, Magellan happened over thirty years ago. So really, I'm sure technology has come quite a long way since that point. Absolutely. And um, congratulations, I think, are in offer. You 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 started your podcast during the pandemic. Yeah. And it's great. I'm surprised you didn't start one sooner, though, to be honest. I was honestly thinking of starting a podcast. I've I've, I've actually been on a podcast uh, called uh, uh, Space 3D for a few years. 
So I, I did. I've done some co-hosting on that podcast over the last few years, but I I wanted to start honestly my own podcast for God the last few years. But I just it was one of those things. I was either too busy, or I just was like, man, I want a co-host, but I just can't. You know, I, I don't know if there's anybody I would vibe with as a co-host. You know, and um, <laughs> and how did that, you find let's, it? Let's let's not make any comments. No, yes, point. yeah, yeah, but, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was just stuck with him. Um, and how? Did, and so how did you find this this British singer-songwriter, <laughs> uh, Dave? What happened was about last, probably about a year ago, I'm, I'm thinking, wow, I can't believe it's been that long. Uh, probably around a year ago, he reached out to me and he was like, you know, hey, I'm a, you know, you don't know me, but I'm in Space Hipsters, you know, I'm a, I'm a singer-songwriter and I'm really interested in starting a space podcast, you know, um, would you be interested? And I thought about it and I was like, why not? You know, he, you know, he seems like a nice kid. I, I'll be honest. I did not know him at all really back then. So it could have been disastrous. Um, but he seemed, you know, really cool. And uh, we, we talked a few times, you know, online, we zoomed and we seemed to vibe really well together as, a, as you know, just people. It sounds like you've known each other a long time. So that's great. I, I think people are quite more shocked to find out that Rich and I are actually married, which I think. <laughs> which... <laughs> yes, no, no, no one air chemistry at all. <laughs> well, <laughs> Just bickering. Yes. Yeah. Well, maybe that's the thing. Yeah. 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 See, if I had a podcast with my husband we'd probably just bicker the whole time <laughs> so we'd probably yeah. just that would be it and and is the plan then to obviously you know keep keep going now as soon as even even post pandemic you're just gonna uh you know keep keep doing what you're you're enjoying and loving yeah oh we're with the podcast we're definitely keeping on uh we're definitely keeping on uh we've got a lot of great shows lined up in the in the next few months i don't want to spoil too many of them uh we've got a lot of great interviews lined up so we're definitely keeping on as long as we possibly can uh so yeah we're we're gonna still keep doing that uh we're very happy we've that the space community has really sort of embraced us and we've gotten a little bit of a following since we've debuted and uh yeah so we're definitely keeping on and uh yeah dave and i get along really well i'm very blessed i i have a really great co-host and we both are pretty much on the same page about a lot of stuff which is pretty awesome. You don't always get that, you know. So, um... about it. <laughs> <laughs> oh <Just> wow! <laughs> no, that's great. Well, well, I think we've always uh, we always love the more the more podcasts, on more space, space podcasts, the, absolutely the better. The better. And yeah. Uh, yeah, it's just just wonderful. And um, I hope it continues to be a success. And in fact, next month, July for us, July twenty twenty one will be our tenth anniversary. Which I can wow. hardly believe. Yeah, we we started July 2011. Um, so yeah, we're trying to think of something special for 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 that one. We're trying to top. What was it last 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 month? Andy oh. Weir. Yeah, well, we had Andy Weir, uh, Jason, musician. Oh, he was so funny. And, <laughs> and Helen Sharman. And Helen Sharman, Britain's yeah. first astronaut. So you know, I think maybe we peaked actually, I think Emily. We peaked I, think la- we, I think we peaked <laughs> last week. Uh, I think last we've month. blown yeah. it. I think we've yeah. blown it. But. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Watch this. Oh, no, don't oh, say that. I'm sorry. That's Emily, thank you. Yeah, Emily, thank you very much for joining us on Space Boffins. Oh, absolutely. This was a lot of fun. Uh, thank you so much. I'm really in- honored you guys invited me. Thank you. You're welcome. My documentary on NASA's 35 New Guys, The Equal Right Stuff, is still available on BBC Sounds. It will be available forever, as long as the BBC exists. You can hear more from Anna Fisher and Nicole Stott there. We're going to finish in a sec, as promised, with music from our listener Bjorn in Sweden. If you have anything space-related you want to share with us, do drop us a message or comment on the usual social media platforms. Our producer's been Jack Monaghan, and we're going to hear the opening section of Nodes Part 1, the Soul System from Oort Cloud Services. Bjorn says it's like a journey through the solar system in the form of a semi-atmospheric melodic ambient track with a speech synth giving a brief rundown of some of the most significant objects and checkpoints all the way from the sun to the Oort Cloud.
first defining node for the measurement of our solar system. Unless otherwise stated, the following nodes are listed with their average orbital distance from the Sun. Mercury, 0.39 astronomical units. Venus, 0.72 astronomical units. 